Chapter 5 of last week, we learned about Solomon's preparation to build the temple. His father David had provided the plans. David had stockpiled gold and silver to be used in the construction. He had even had a relationship with Hiram, the king of Tyr, who helped build David's palace. And so, after David had given Solomon some instructions, Solomon now knew that it was time to proceed and to actually build the temple. So he contracted with Hiram to get the building supplies that he needed, the wood and the stone and um, some of the expertise. Remember that Hiram was a skilled craftsman. He was known throughout the ancient Near East as a master builder, constructed uh, many buildings all over the ancient Near East. And so David had contracted with him to build his palace, and now Solomon had contracted with him to build the temple and his own palace. We also saw how Solomon put together a massive workforce of over 200,000 people, about 30-some thousand Israelites who served in shifts to go 10,000 in a month, and then about 170 or 180,000 um, Canaanite slaves that became a labor force form, transporting storm and other thing, or um, stones and other things. And then we saw that it would take him about seven years to build the temple. So today we're going to actually see that sort of start to kick off. We're going to look at three things in our outline today. The first is the construction of the temple. It actually ushered in a new era for Israel's history, and so we're going to look at it from that perspective. So the construction of the temple ushered in a new era in Israel's history. The second thing we're going to look at is the design of the temple, which reflected the splendor and majesty of God. There's a lot of details, and sometimes those details can get a little heavy, and you might be tempted like me to want to just skip over it, kind of like the genealogies and numbers. But uh, it's there for a reason, so we're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at, um, ultimately, the purpose for the temple being useless without obedience. In other words, we're going to see the construction of the temple, the design of the temple, all the things that it represents, but then the way that the text uh, passage kind of closes today is with a warning, if you will, or not so much a warning, but words from the Lord to Solomon. And without obedience, the temple is ultimately useless. And so that's the way we're going to close today. So let's look at the construction of the temple. We're going to look at just this very first verse, and it's amazing how much you can get out of one verse. Chapter 6, verse 1, it starts like this. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is, in, which is the second month, and he began to build the house of the Lord. Some of you were alive during 9-11, some of you... Is everybody here alive? No. Some of you came after 9-11. An interesting thing about 9-11 is that just that word, or that phrase, if you will, 9-11, um, it's kind of like a symbol. It, it kind of represents something, does it not? I mean, when you just hear that, it sort of stands out. Now, something that we oftentimes don't really think about is 9-11 itself actually ushered in a new era for the United States and how we dealt with terrorism. You know, for so long we would, you know, we had the bombing of the, of the Twin Towers prior to 9-11 once before, and we had other terrorist attacks that would happen here and there. But after 9-11, we kind of shifted our perspective on dealing with terrorism, and it was to basically take the fight to them overseas. In fact, I don't remember if it was Bush or one of his advisors one time that said, it's much better for us to fight them over there 
than it is to fight them over here. And so we had things like the Iraq War and Afghanistan and some other things. And whether you agree or disagree with all that, the philosophy had sort of changed. It became a new era in how we were going to fight terrorism. And that was, we'll take it to them. Now, again, whether that was the right decision or wrong decision, history will ultimately determine, and people have different opinions. But 9-11 ushered in a new era for the United States and how we handle terrorism. And oftentimes, dates have a way of doing that. Dates are assigned to very specific times in history that sort of stand out. And so we see that actually here with verse 1, where the author here tells us something very specific about the start of the building of this temple. He says that it started in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of Egypt, in the fourth reign of, or fourth year of Solomon's reign, and then he even gives us the month, Ziv. And the question is, why would the author do that? Because he hasn't really done that so far. Well, what's interesting is there's a sort of pattern, if you will, in the Old Testament where dates are given at very significant times in history, and they serve a purpose. So, for instance, turn to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Genesis chapter 7, I'm sorry, verse 11, says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Why is this important? Well, what happened here in Genesis chapter 7? Your Bible will give you the little heading there. That's the beginning of the flood, which ushered in a beginning of a new era in human history. God was going to wipe out all but eight individuals and the animals that were on the ark. Something new was about to happen in human history. If you jump to chapter 8, verse 13, we see something very similar. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first, uh, first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up on the earth, Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. So here we have another reference to a data. What was this? Well, this was the end of the flood, which again began a new area. So we have this unprecedented judgment of God that is instituted or started with the reference to a date. Then we have the end of that and the beginning of life on a new planet or on on a new earth, if you will. That begins with 8.13 with a designation of a date again. How about Exodus chapter 12? We see a very similar thing. Exodus chapter 12. Go down to verse 40. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. What happens here? Again, we have this marker, a date given, if you will. This is the beginning of the Exodus, which was a new era in Israel's history. How about Exodus chapter 19? Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. What happened here? This was now the giving of the law which ushered in a new era in Israel's history. Prior to that, they didn't have the law. Now they've got the law. Exodus chapter 40. 
verse 17. Now in the first month of the second year, of the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. What's the difference here? What's the new era? Well, now they have a place to actually worship the Lord. You have the tabernacle being built. And God's presence would come down upon the tabernacle. They would bring their sacrifices to that tabernacle. This ultimately marks a new era in Israel's religious life. And so what we see is this pattern in the Old Testament where at important or significant events, times when a new era, if you will, is ushered in, the authors oftentimes designate those by giving us a date. Another example, we don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses now is preparing Israel to go on into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 1, 3, they do the same thing. The author gives a date. And so we find that this giving of dates oftentimes is done when a new era begins in either human history or Israel's history. If you look back at 1 Kings chapter 4, chapter 6, we find the giving of a date here. And what is the significance here? The significance here is that up until this time, Israel had been worshiping the Lord at various places throughout all of Israel. We saw that they had high places, and again, I, I believe that the reference to the high places there during David's reign and now during Solomon's was not a reference to the pagan high places, but rather places that were set up by Israel, throughout Israel, to worship God, and they were generally put up on high plateaus. Even Jerusalem was up on a plateau where the temples being built was the highest place in, in Jerusalem. And so they would go out and they would worship at these high places. Because they didn't have a central place to worship the Lord. They did have the tabernacle in Gibeon, but it was a temporary thing. It was really small. It was made for transport. That's where Solomon went because he was close. But most of Israel would worship the Lord out at these various high places. And so, in fact, even at at the tabernacle, the, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't even there. Because David had moved that. So there was the tent and the altar, but the Ark of the Covenant wasn't even there. So it wasn't even a complete religious experience, if you will, for them. And so it was all somewhat temporary, if you will. But what happens now? Now, we have the building of the temple. The beginning of a new era in Israel's history. A place where God would put his name, and all Israel would have to come three times a year, or at least all the men would have to come three times a year, and bring their sacrifices and their offerings to the Lord. He would put his name there. The world would know that the Lord is the God of Jerusalem and all of Israel. And so we have the beginning of this new era. And it's all something that the Lord had promised. He had given evidence of this time. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, jump down to verse 10. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest or peace from all your enemies around you, so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring forth all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution of your land or of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. So what we basically find here is that the Lord had promised a time where he would settle Israel in the land, he would give them peace, and he would put his name on a place, we know that to be Jerusalem, and he would ultimately 
have a temple built where they would bring all of their offerings to him. He repeated that promise to David. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, going on to verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you, that's David's palace, When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, that's the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the men or the sons of Israel. But my loving kindness shall shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. Endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. And so the Lord had repeated his promise to Moses, to David, saying, I'm going to put my name on a place. I'm going to have a temple built for me. There'll be peace all around you. So there's these important details in some of this text. First and foremost, God would set a time and a place to do that. That's pretty clear in the text. Second, it would happen after he had given Israel rest, after settling them in the land, giving them peace from all of their enemies. Third, it would be Solomon who would actually build the temple. He told that to David. It would be his son. And one thing we don't specifically see outlined here, but in various texts, God would no longer tolerate Israel worshiping out at these high places. In other words, they would have to come to Israel, or come to Jerusalem now, to worship him. And so all four of these things are now coming to a head. And what the author is telling us in verse 1, by putting a date on this, that there is now a new era in Israel's history. They would no longer worship at the high places. They would no longer do what everyone thought was right in their own eyes, as Moses said. They would all come to Jerusalem. God's name and, and presence would be there at Jerusalem. He would have a temple built. They would bring their offerings three times a year, their sacrificial offerings there. They would worship him there. They would no longer do it outside of that. So, 480 years after Israel left Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, in the month of Ziv, a new era begins for Israel. That's what this building of the temple represents. So what are some of the takeaways just from this? One takeaway is that God certainly isn't in a hurry with his redemptive plan. Isn't that true? Think about this. Um... Throughout God's redemptive history, we see this. It was approximately 500 years from God's promise to Abraham to the Exodus. 500 years. It was almost 500 years from the Exodus now to the building of the temple. 480 years, we're told. It was approximately 1,000 years from there to the birth of Christ and the resurrection. Now it's been almost 2,000 years from Christ's resurrection to where we're at today. You know, when people in Peter's day, after what, just 30, 40 years maybe, were all concerned because Jesus hadn't come back yet. They were growing impatient, beginning to doubt God because it had been 40 years. They probably weren't aware of Israel's history. 
Because they would have seen, you know, God takes his time, but they're all concerned after just 30 or 40 years that Jesus isn't going to come back. And Peter's response was, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so I think one of the takeaways here is that God is certainly not in a hurry with his redemptive plan. He is patient with mankind. I can paraphrase Ralph Davis, who one of the commentaries I've been using for First Kings, said this, The Lord is a persevering God who slowly and steadily accomplishes his redemptive work. He's patient. Thank God. I mean, think about this. If God would have finished his redemptive program 2,000 years ago, where would we be? Never been born. Never had the opportunity to know him. Never had the opportunity to be in heaven. Never had the opportunity for eternal life and to be able to worship God for all of eternity. I'm thankful that God has been slow and patient. It's one of the reasons why I get a little bit irked when I hear Christians whine and complain about how bad things are getting and how Jesus can't possibly delay any longer because we are suffering so bad here. And I think to myself, man, when he comes back, it is judgment city. Where is the compassion? Where is the desire to see these people now be saved? Maybe the Lord should wait just a little bit longer. We can take it, can't we? Christians all over the world suffer for the name of Christ. I've been reading the last couple of weeks on the number of Christians that are being slaughtered in places like Nigeria and other places. Um, Evangelists that have gone out just being slaughtered for the name of Christ. Why do they do that? They know God wants people saved. And so one of the takeaways for us here is that God is not quick about it because he's patient, he's long-suffering. And so when we look at this and we see 480 years before he built the temple, because God is patient. Another takeaway is that the Lord keeps his promises. We're going to see that, we're going to beat that dead horse. I've mentioned that a couple of times now. One of the themes that we continue to see through Solomon's life is that the Lord keeps his promises. And here it is, 480 years later, and the Lord had kept his promise in amazing detail. Right down to picking Jerusalem, to putting his name on it, to having Solomon build the temple for him, to the peace all around him and the neighbors. Before Joshua died, listen to what he said to Israel. Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of everything that the good Lord said concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. That's Joshua chapter 23, verse 14. Solomon said something similar when he was praying. 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. God's faithfulness in keeping his promises wasn't just important for Israel. It's just as important for us too, isn't it? In fact, the foundation of our faith is God's faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, Why? He who promised is what? Faithful. We should hold fast. Why? Because the Lord is faithful. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved completely, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Lastly, 1 John chapter 2, verse 25. This is the promise which he made to us. Eternal life. All that we believe, everything about our faith, is built on the foundation of God's faithfulness. We trust him, right? Why would anybody go through what Christians go through if they couldn't rely on the promises that God has made? Wouldn't be worth it, would it? If it was a crapshoot, you know, wouldn't be worth it. But God is a God who fulfills his promises. And it isn't always quick. It isn't always fast. But we can see here in chapter 6, verse 1, that 480 years later, God did exactly what he told Israel he would do. Because he's faithful. Let's move on. Let's look at some of the uh, details now of the temple itself. The design of the temple actually reflects the splendor and the majesty of God. Chapter 6 and 7 consist mainly of this long list of these extensive details regarding the design, the contents of the temple. It even covers the building of Solomon's palace. Um, I mentioned already that if you're like me, you kind of tendency to skip over that. You know, it's little pedantic details. And, you know, maybe Dustin appreciates it because he's an architect. Um, some of the rest of us have trouble maybe putting all those pieces together and visualizing it. It's kind of like reading the genealogies and numbers, you know, where it's like, is this necessary? But it's there for a reason, right? God puts it there for a reason for us. So we're going to go ahead and do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this. So hang in there with me as we read through it. And we'll see how it really represents the splendor of God. So let's look at chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. This describes the temple building itself. So verse 2 through 10. As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, and its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. The porch in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house, and its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits. Also for the house he made windows with artistic frames. Against the wall of the house he built stone or stories encompassing the walls of the house around both the nave and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made the side chambers all around. So there's chambers outside around the outside of the temple here. The lowest story was five cubits wide, and the middle was six cubits wide, and the third was seven cubits wide. They got wider as they went up, these outside rooms. For the outside he made offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams would not be inserted in the walls of the house. The house, while it was being built, was built of stone, prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. All the work was done outside. It was quiet, fairly quiet inside the temple as this was being done. I think that's rather interesting. The doorway of the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the house, and they would go in up winding stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third So he built the house and finished it, and he covered the house with beams and planks of cedar. He also built the stories against the whole house, each five cubits high, and they were fastened to the house with timbers of cedar. So that's the structure of the temple itself. You can go do the math if you want and figure out how big it is. Now, verses 15 through 30 actually describe the inside of the temple, including the holy place 
in the Holy of Holies. Remember, the tabernacle had the holy place where the priests would work, and then there's the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Not everybody was permitted in there. So now he's going to describe what that is like. So we'll look at verses... Um, I'm going to jump over verses 11. And so we're going to go down to 15. We'll come back to verse 11. 15. So he built the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the ceiling... He overlaid the walls on the inside with wood, and he overlaid the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits on the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built them for in at the, or the inside of the inner sanctuary, even as the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. There was cedar on the house within, carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers, all with cedar, there was no stone seen. So all the stone is completely covered with cedar. Isn't cedar the stuff that smells really good? Like cedar chest? you imagine what that must have smelled like? I love the smell of cedar. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. It was perfect square, cube. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary. And he overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar which was by the inner sanctuary was overlaid with gold. Also in the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits of the other wing of the cherub, and the end of one wing to the other end of the wing were ten cubits. The other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubim were of the same measure and the same form. The height of the one cherub was ten cubits, and the height of the other cherub. He placed the cherub in the midst of the inner house, and the wings of the cherub were spread out so that the wing of one was touching the other wall, and the wing of the other cherub was touching the other wall. So their wings were touching each other in the center of the house. So basically, in the Holy of Holies, you had where the ark was going to go, you had these two giant cherubs with these wings, and they basically stretched from wall into the center where they touched. So from wall to wall, these giant ten cubit high cherubs that would stand over the top of the ark. Verse 27. He placed the cherub in the midst of the inner house and the wings of the cherub were spread out so that the wing of one was touching the other wall and the wing of the other cherub was touching the other wall so their wings were touching each other in the center of the house. He also overlaid the cherub, cherubim, actually plural, within, or with gold. Then he carved all the walls of the house around with carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. So we'll stop there for a second. So now what we basically have is describing this inside of the sanctuary all completely. All the stone was covered with cedar planking. And then on top of that, gold over it. Pretty much everything covered most likely with with a form of hammered gold to cover it up. Now let's go to the entrance of the temple and what's referred to as, well, just we'll, we'll read through it. He overlaid the floor of the house with gold, the inner and the outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood and the lintel and five-sided doorposts. I kind of want Dustin to explain to me what that is, but five-sided doorposts. 
So he made two doors of olive wood, and he carved on them carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And he overlaid them with gold, and he spread the gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance of the nave four-sided doorposts of olive wood, and two doors of cypress wood, and two leaves of one door turned on their pivots, and the two leaves of the other door turned on its pivots. I think those are what those accordion-style doors. I think that's what they're describing here. I don't know. I'm looking at Dustin because he might know. I think that means accordion-style doors. He carved it on the cherub, or char, he carved on it cherubim, saw, uh, fall, uh, saw, I'm sorry, palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the engraved work. He built the inner court with three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams. On the fourth year of the foundations of the house of Israel, the Lord was, or the, of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house, house was finished through all of its parts, according to all of its plans. So he was seven years in building it. So we see the same thing with the giving of the date at the end there, because it took seven years, and so he basically bookends the building of the temple with giving the date that it began, and then the date that it ended. Again, because we're ushering in a new era here. But now, do you all have a good picture in your head <laughs> of what this looks like? You will in a second, I promise you. Why are all these details important? Why? I mean, it's, it's a little pedantic, right? And if you're like me, I have trouble putting all this into my head and seeing it. I'm somebody who, I don't like reading books. I like seeing the movies. It's just visual. Much better for me. People always say, the books are so much better than movies. I get it, but I want to see it. I don't have a great imagination when it comes to that kind of stuff. So why are these important? The first thing that comes to mind is that Remember, many of the people that he was writing to, this author, he's writing this likely while he's either in the exile or right after they had been returned to the land. And so the Jews that were returning would have never seen the temple because the temple had been destroyed. When Israel was taken off into exile, they just, the, um, their enemies destroyed the temple. And so the author, remember, is writing this to the Israelites who are returning back to the land. And he's writing it to them as a warning. Don't be like your forefathers. Look at what they gave up. God gave them peace and an amazing kingdom and this great temple. All they had to do was obey, and they didn't. So look at where we ended up in exile. And so what better reminder of what God had done for Israel than to describe the temple that they had never seen. Can you imagine what that must have been like going back and being able to look on the, the temple mount and realize there used to be this temple, but they would be able to imagine what it looked like and the glory of it. And it was all forfeited, all given up, because their forefathers had refused to obey the Lord. And so they were now going back, and as Ezra and others, Jeremiah would tell them, this time you better obey! Look what happened last time. And so I think one of the reasons he provides these details is so that the Israelites going back know what used to be there, what God had done, and now there's just this flat area where it used to be. And in fact, one of the things that happens is they rebuild the temple, but if you remember, the people are upset because it didn't match the former temple. It was smaller. It wasn't quite as glorious. They would know that because of what he described. What a great reminder that would be of what they had given up by their disobedience. I think a second thing that comes to mind is that these details are important because the design of the temple reflected the splendor and the majesty of God. Um, 
the nations around Israel were, were filled with temples. They were, they were common. They were dedicated to their pagan gods. Many of them were actually pretty impressive. They put a lot of money into them. In terms of size, there were some that were bigger than Solomon's temple, but there was nothing that compared in terms of its ornateness, the wealth, the expense, the beauty, and the splendor. Um, there was a temple in um, Egypt called the Luxor, Luxor Temple. You know, there's a, not the one in Vegas, but the Luxor Temple in, in Egypt. It was the largest in terms of size. It had 10 different sections to it. Just the entrance to it was 200 feet wide. It was a massive complex, dozens of towering sphinxes. It's a pretty spectacular thing to see. There's still remnants of it in places. There's another temple in Tyre. Remember, Hiram came from Tyre. The temple to Melkart there was a pretty impressive temple. Took up almost an entire island. It was known for its two giant altars. One of them was made of pure gold, or one of them was overlaid with gold. The other one was made of green emerald, and they would put candles in it, and at night it would glow. Pretty impressive, right? But nothing compared to Solomon's temple when it was finished. Think about this for a second. One of the things that made Solomon's temple so impressive was the fact that everything was covered in gold. Imagine that for a second. There wasn't a little bit of gold here and there. I mean, poor little Melkart in his temple only had one altar covered with gold. The other one had to be made of emerald. Yeah, it was pretty cool looking, but it wasn't gold. Gold is mentioned 16 times in chapter 6 and 7. Walls, ceilings, doorposts, doors, even the floor were completely covered with gold. Two giant cherubim that stood in the Holy of Holies were completely covered with gold. The furnishings were almost all gold. The altar, the candle stands, the tables, all gold. Even the utensils they used, most of them were gold, but there were some made of silver. That was the outlier. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, David left Solomon 100,000 talents of gold, which amounts to 3,000 tons or 6 million pounds of gold that David had accumulated and left for Solomon. He also left him a, or 1 million talents of silver, which is 30,000 tons or 60 million pounds of silver. At today's prices, that would amount to about $180 billion of gold and silver that David left for Solomon. Now, It's not clear whether Solomon used all of that. In fact, he probably didn't because at the end of the building, he moves some of those, some of the gold stores into the storage areas around the temple. So he probably didn't use all of that in the building of the temple. However, it does say, 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 8, that he used 600 talents, which is about $10 billion worth of gold, on just the walls, ceiling, and floors in the Holy of Holies. So just on the walls, ceiling, and floor in the Holy of Holies, over $10 billion worth of gold. Now, the Holy of Holies was the smallest room. The holy place was significantly larger than that. And that also had the walls, the floor, the ceiling covered. You also had the cherubim that were covered. You had all the utensils. It's, it's almost impossible to estimate amount of gold that went into this temple, but most people believe that it probably, if you look at the 600 talents that were just used on a few items in there, if you do the math, I mean, we could be talking 80, 90, 100 billion dollars worth of gold put into the temple. 
I don't think we have a way of even guessing what that must have been like to walk into a place like that. I think my eyes would freak out because of everything glittering and shining. I'm going to show you a video here that I think, I think might help give you a picture of what it actually looked like. It's just an artist's 3D rendering to give us an idea of what this might have looked like. It's going to show us both the stuff on the outside, which we'll get to next week, but also give you a picture of what it probably looked like on the inside based on biblical details. So, so if you want to go ahead and just play that for us. It's about three or four minutes long. imagine walking into a place like that? Now, obviously, there's some artistic license in there. Like, we don't know exactly what the cherubim looked like, um, some of the other stuff. So there's some artistic license in there a little bit. But probably a pretty good depiction of what it must have been like. What's our takeaway from this? Um, from our Christian mindset and our Christian perspective, we might wonder why God would endorse such extravagance. I mean, when we think about that, if you think about churches today... And, you know, we sometimes see churches that, you know, build these big, massive structures. And sometimes we kind of scratch our heads, you know, and um, sometimes, you know, we don't. Sometimes we look at them and go, no, it's modest. It looks great. And then other times, you know, I think about when, was it Schuler who built the Crystal Cathedral, you know. And so from our Christian perspective, sometimes we look at something like that and we wonder about the extravagance. You know, why, why would God do something like this? Why would he put that kind of money and gold and other things into it? But in the ancient Near East, the temples actually symbolized the nation's god or gods. It symbolized their presence among that nation. And so it was very, very common. And probably, um, probably one of the best responses I've heard to this was by another commentator, Dale Davis. And he said it this way, I'll paraphrase him, but in a world filled with lavish temples built by kings to honor their pagan gods, why should God's house look like a discount store or something built with a government loan? I think he's right. Because the temple was supposed to display the splendor, the majesty, the goodness, the wealth, the power of God. And the temple did that. When people walked in, they would have been in awe. The, Solomon's temple was known all over the ancient Near East. Like I said, there was nothing as splendid as it. A lot of temples and stuff. A lot of nice-looking temples. But nothing compared to the temple here. And so Solomon's temple served the same purpose as these other temples, that it represented God's presence among Israel. But God, as the God of gods the one true God, it makes sense that his temple would truly outshine other temples, that it would represent who he truly is. That's not the case for us today because we are the church. We don't have to build big buildings and big lavish things. Pastors don't have to have offices with three sides of windows all overlooking beautiful. I mean, that's not the way we operate today. You know? But back then it was a significant thing for a temple like this to represent who God was, his majesty and his glory. And certainly this temple did it as you walked in. Now, one other thing I'll point out too is that we get into the details like this and again, why they might be important. You know, most Israelites could never enter the Holy of Holies. And so this would have been their only picture into what it looked like inside the Holy of Holies, which is where God took up his presence. You know, the priest 
high priest would get to go in, they'd tie a rope around him in case he died when he was in there, they could pull him out. But most Israelites never saw, they could see into the holy place, but they couldn't get into the holy of holies. And so this was their only picture of what that must have been like. So now let's get to the last few verses. You may have noticed that I stepped over, skipped verses 11 through 14. Um, it's because I wanted to save them for last because I think they're the, probably the most important verses in this passage. We get caught up in the magnificent of the temple, uh, the gold, the silver, even wonder what it must have been like to walk through those doors. Um, but there's a profoundly simple lesson and that's God reminded Solomon of during the building of the temple. I want you to read with me verses 11 through 14. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, Concerning this house which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all of my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you which I spoke to David your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. What's the Lord say there? This is at the beginning of the building of the temple. The Lord tells him, okay, you build this temple. If you walk in my ways, if you honor me, if you remain faithful, if you walk in obedience, then I will carry out my word that I told David. And we find out other places where the Lord spoke to Solomon. That would include David always having somebody on the throne. But ultimately in this passage here, the promise is that if you do that, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will not forsake them. And so Solomon, as he gets ready to build this massive temple, could not have been under the misunderstanding that just by building the temple guaranteed God's presence among Israel. You know, it's not sort of like, hey, we build it, he'll come. That wasn't the promise. We're going to see in a couple of weeks, um, there's this pattern that appears in the, old, in the um, first 11 chapters, where the author always reminds us of this before he tells us about the accomplishments of Solomon. He does that four times. Reminds us of what God said, and then tells us about the accomplishments. It's a pattern. And it's because this is the most important thing. God's promise is predicated on their obedience. The crux of what God said to Solomon is this. Israel could only expect his presence at the temple if they lived in obedience. Plain and simple. There's no purpose in building the temple if they weren't going to do that. In fact, God told them elsewhere, if you forsake me, I'll destroy the temple and I'll run you out of the land. We know the end of the story. They forsook God, destroyed the temple, ran them out of the land. In fact, I think it's chapter, was it, which chapter was I in last night? I think it was chapter 9, where he says, Israel will become a byword and a proverb, meaning a lesson to teach the rest of the world what happens when you forsake God. And that's not a good lesson. And so what we find here with, with Solomon, I think the takeaway is that the same principle is true for us today. Absolutely true for us today. Many want religion without obedience and faithfulness to God. I hate that phrase, you know, my faith. I'm not saying we shouldn't, maybe you've used it, but you know, that irritates me because I think it's a meaningless statement. My faith. Now, if you say my faith in Jesus Christ, 
It's a little different, right? People refer to themselves as, we're people of faith. You can say whatever you want. It means nothing. We even have a form of that in the church today. Many who profess to know Jesus Christ, but they don't walk in obedience to his word. We're finding more and more of that. Jesus told us the time of apostasy is going to come. He's talking about the church. The time's going to come where they're going to reject sound teaching, as Paul tells Timothy, but they're also going to reject walking in his principles. What do we see today, folks? I don't know how many, three or four articles, at least this week alone, that just got sent to me over my news feed about compromise in the church. Rather than merely being in the world, many have chosen to become part of the world. They see no conflict between their faith and just living like the world. There's no obedience. There's no faithfulness. In fact, when you look at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, what is it, five of them, I believe, Jesus just slams. There's only one that he really praises, really, I mean, quite a bit. Because of their unfaithfulness, their wickedness, their evil deeds. So we see this in the church. Buildings mean nothing. You can get up every morning and you can have your devotion. You can have an emotional experience when you walk in the church and sing great praise and worship music. All of that is meaningless if it isn't followed up with obedience and faithfulness. Am I wrong? But yet we have a lot of that. There's no expectation of change. There's no expectation of a new life in Christ where you give up the old man and you start to behave like the new man that you are. It was that way with Solomon. We're going to see that again. There's a pattern over and over and over. Walk in obedience to me, be faithful to me, and I will fulfill my promises to you and to Israel and to David. But if you don't, and so you can walk into a church and call yourself a believer, but it means nothing if there's no walking in obedience to Christ. The Bible actually warns us about this. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Start in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper that he may be with you forever. Can you imagine that? If you love me, you'll obey me and I'll even give you some help doing it. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and I am in you. He who has my commandments will keep and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, What then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. How much more of a warning do we need than that? John follows that up in his letters. You don't have to turn there, but... 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-6 through 6, talk about that very thing. You can't say that you love me if you don't obey me. He does the same thing in 3 John chapter 1. The test of genuine faith 
is obedience to Christ and his word. That's just it. That's the test. Now, can you have obedience, not a love or a faithfulness to Christ? Absolutely, that's called works. It's just as bad. But you cannot say that I believe in Jesus Christ, I've trusted him with my, with my salvation, I am a faithful believer. You cannot say that if you do not obey. Now, fortunately, we fail sometimes, and there's a way to come to Christ and confess those sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. He doesn't demand perfection, but he does demand faithfulness and obedience. Without that, calling ourselves Christians, reading the Bible, going to church, wearing the hat, Jesus t-shirts, <laughs> everything else is meaningless. And in the same way, the temple would be meaningless if they didn't walk in obedience, and that's the Lord's message to Solomon.